All right, let's see. Wow, Sunday, October 13th, 2013. And this is Solder Smoke 155, a big delay. Sorry, guys, it's all my fault. Well, it's not really my fault. It's the, uh, the fault of the radio gods. They have uh, caused me to melt prodigious amounts of solder and take on a truly humongous um, test gear repair project. I'll tell you all, all about it in this week's episode. Um, this is, I guess, the uh, the back, supposed to be the back to school issue. Holy cow, I'm really behind. The kids have been back to school for quite some time. Um, but they're back in school and having a good time and, and enjoying it. Life is good. And the leaves are starting to fall here in northern Virginia. And uh, it's time to get oriented towards um, winter shack projects. And I am deep into one of mine. I hope it's done before the winter, but you never can tell with these things. After talking about it for years and years, I decided to bite the bullet and build a bit X. I think I talked about this in uh, previous episodes. I was sort of trying to figure out what band to build for and what, what IF to use, and what crystals to use and everything else. And um, I had all kinds of different schemes and uh, I went through different versions. I was going to do um, 13 megahertz, um, uh, 9 megahertz uh, filter arrangement uh, to get to, I guess that would get me to, I don't know where what it was, but <laughs> I uh, I was I, I I really needed to decide what band I was going to build for, and um, let's see. I, I, at one point, I was trying to build a VFO because you know the the bit X. Let me. I guess I better back up a bit here and tell you guys about the bit X. Um, the bit X stands for bidirectional transceiver, and it was designed by our our friend and mentor uh, Farhan in India, and. This rig has been around for a while. I think the original design done by Farhan, with a lot of help from uh, from Wes Hayward, um, was put out around 2004, and it's a really beautiful rig. The first version was for 20 meters, and Farhan used a 10 megahertz IF using just standard 10 megahertz computer crystals, and he built a little VFO at around 4 megahertz to put the bit X on 20, hence the bit X 20. Um, you can find the, the schematic uh, through the through my blog or just search uh, Farhan Bidex and there it is. Um, and it's a really amazing design, a beautiful design. If you study it a little bit, you'll see that at the heart of this rig are bidirectional amplifiers, um, three of them, at three little amplifier blocks, each containing two transistors. The upper transistor is for receive and the lower transistors for transmit and the way uh, T transmit to receive um, switching is accomplished in the bit X it's all by um, by by diodes and you just when you put you you, you build up a, a transmit line and a receive line for the uh, the voltage going to these amplifiers and when the um, the receive line is activated it switches on the uh, receive portion of the little bidirectional amp and uh, turns off the transmit portion. Um, when you look at it, there actually is, uh, there are a few components that are, I think just maybe just one or two that are active in both transmit and receive. That has to do with the feedback, ne feedback network. But conceptually, you could just imagine three little amplifier blocks. 
the upper portion for receive, the lower portion for transmit, and easily switched by little diode switches that you put in there. Um, and lots and lots of people have been building the BIDX. The, there's a beauty in its uh, the whole concept, its, its simplicity itself. And Farhan came up with a design that could be easily reproduced by um, radio amateurs in India, uh, hams who might not have a lot of uh, money to spend on radio and might not have access to kind of some of the, the, the fancy um, parts that those of us in Europe or the United States are, are accustomed to having easy access to. For example, uh, toroidal cores. If you're in some place where it's hard to get a toroid, um, a T50-6, um, that could be a showstopper for you. But here's one of the really beautiful things about the BIDX. Farhan designed it so that you would have toroidal coils, but the cores were simple nylon washers. And I, I think they're the kind of nylon washers that you find in pieces of electronics, but I think they're also the kind of nylon washers that are used in, in sinks, if I'm not mistaken. But they're little little things like about a half inch in diameter made out of nylon and you wind your coils on those things if you want to and now um, I didn't I didn't go the full bit X <laughs> I cheated in a number of ways and I'll describe that in this uh, in this episode but um, I used I used toroids and uh, some ferrite and some uh, iron powder toroids just because I got used to using them and didn't want to mess with the additional turns that would have to you'd have to put on those nylon things the nylons were a little the nylon uh, cores were a little bit a uh, little bit too much for me so I, I i i didn't didn't quite do the the full full bit x i guess it's sort of like going to an american indian restaurant you know they give you kind of a tame version of of indian food we have we have two here in the town one is like a real indian restaurant and that's really kind of too much for us. And the other one is kind of a, a toned down version <laughs> with food that's not quite as, as, as spicy. I guess so. I guess that's sort of the way to a kind of a, a model to, to, to have in mind when you're thinking about my version of the BIDX because I try to keep the essence of it, but I, I kind of wimp out at a number of occasions and didn't, didn't go the full, the full Hyderabad, I think. Um, anyway, um, I, I started out thinking that I was going to build a VFO, and I, I realized that I've built very few VFOs. I've built lots of VXOs, and I think this is the, the influence of Doug Dumas. Doug was very into VXOs, and variable crystal oscillators, as opposed to full-blown VFOs. But I figured, oh, heck, I can do this. I read all about VFOs, and I, I built myself up a little VFO for, um, I guess I built it for around 4 megahertz. and um, I got it going, and uh, I, you know, it, there's, there's, there seems to be a lot of kind of black magic, or it's, it's a bit of a black art, the, the, the construction of a VFO. Um, you have to use a certain kind of coil core. That's very important. Of course, everything has to be very physically and mechanically uh, stable. You have to be careful about where the heat's going to develop. You have to be careful about the voltages, the LC ratios, all these things. There's a lot of lore involved here in what goes into a successful VFO design. Anyway, I built one. And um, I must say, I think it probably would have been okay had I not had so much experience with really stable VXOs. And it probably also would have been okay 
if I had not had the frequency counter that I picked up at the uh, the Kempton rally outside of London and repaired with a chip from Tony Fishpool. Uh, you remember? You guys remember the chip? This is the one that I soldered in upside down on both sides of the board. There you go. Now you remember what I'm talking about. But anyway, since I have the frequency counter, what I would do is I would take the frequency counter and hook it up to the new VFO, and that I would watch it, and it would drift, and I didn't like that. And then it would cool down, but it would drift some more. Then I'd leave the thing on all night, and I'd get up in the morning and compare where it was in the morning as opposed to where I where it was when I left it at night. And it was it was really I, I think I was developing a kind of um, ham homebrew version of obsessive compulsive disorder. It was really getting kind of scary. There was collateral damage here too, guys. Collateral damage because you know I had the way I had my frequency counter hooked up was through the Tech 465 oscilloscope, my beloved Tech 465 oscilloscope. And you know, there's a little jack on the back of the Tech 465. I think it was Armand who told us about this that you hook up to your frequency counter, and it doesn't matter. It uses the amplifiers in the uh, oscilloscope to get the signal levels up to a point where that uh, uh, frequency counter can read it. So that's what I did. And this, of course, left caused me to leave the Tech 465 on for long periods of time. Now, I didn't leave the, the trace on the scope. Or I'm, not, you know, I'm not that inexperienced with these things, but I did leave the thing on too long, and I managed to break my Tech 465 oscilloscope right as I was getting into this major transceiver project. Plus, um, you know, I'm getting discouraged with the um, with the VFO, the whole VFO thing. Um, you know, everybody was making fun of me because one of the things you do is you, you okay, you you wind your your coil, and I use the um, T50-6 material, the yellow mix, the yellow um, uh, iron powder, not ferrite, the iron powder, and I wound the coil. I was very careful, get those winds, those things wound really tight. I didn't go so far as to boil the thing in water. I mean, that just seemed <laughs> that seemed to me to be too much. But I did know that I had to get some sort of sealant on it, some sort of thing that they used to call used to call it Q-dope. I imagine Q-dope is now kind of difficult to obtain. If you walk into a store and say, uh, "Hi, I'd like to buy some Q-dope," I think that they're um, They'll probably associate that with um, the American television program Breaking Bad and that entire chemical industry. So no, no Q-dope, but it got worse because, okay, I read on the Internet that a good replacement for Q-dope is clear uh, nail, nail polish varnish. It's clear nail polish varnish. So I got to jump in the car and drive down to the local uh, pharmacy and look around for... Um, nail polish little jar jar of nail polish it's the only thing i bought so here they see this uh, 50 year old guy walking into the store and the only thing he wants to buy is a tiny little bo bottle of nail polish clear nail polish cover and i got some i got some strange looks there it, it reminded me a bit many years ago when i was building a uh, the mate for the mighty midget receiver the lou mccoy's article in qst called for coil forms made out of pill bottles Ordinary pill bottles, you know, like a little bottle of pills, a little cylindrical thing, always kind of brownish in color. You guys know what I'm talking about. And I went down to the local pharmacy and told them I needed some pill bottles. And I got immediately got the um, the hairy eyeball look from the pharmacist. 
And he was obviously thinking that, you know, he was thinking, what are you going to put in these pill bottles, Mr. Mara? So good thing I had in my back pocket a, a, a copy of uh, the, I think it was the 1956 issue of QST with an article by Lou McCoy with a picture of coils wound around pill bottles. So that got me to to score a few pill bottles from the pharmacist. Anyway, I was having flashbacks with that. I got the, when I bought the uh, the nail polish varnish, came back, painted my uh, coil, and then you had to let it settle down. I noticed I'm watching the frequency the whole time. Again, obsessive compulsive disorder with the uh, frequency variation on the VFO. And as the varnish goes on, it's changing. As the varnish cools off, it's changing. As the varnish hardens, it's changing. The thing is all over the place. And then I started saying, okay, I got to do some, some digging here. I got to look into how, how to do, what you have to do is temperature compensation. You have to make sure that the components that you have in there with a positive temperature coefficient are balanced out by components that have a negative temperature coefficient. There's an entire section in um, experimental methods for RF design on temperature compensation. But guys, I got to tell you, here's another area where I'm wimping out. It just seemed too painful. It seemed really hard. <laughs> and I, I, I have a limited amount of time that I could spend building this stuff. So extraneous activities like figuring out, you know, temperature compensation, it just seemed like too much. So um, anyway, I, uh, I, I, I wimped out. And I went the VXO route. Aha! This is this is where um, this is a, a stroke of good luck came in. I was thinking, what combination can I use for the IF? And um, and you know, I'll need crystals for the VFO. I need the VFO frequency. By this point, I had pretty much decided that I wanted to build it for 17 meters, beloved 17 meter band. Not too crazy about 40. I mean, I like 40. 20 is a little bit too competitive and uh, seems like a lot of road rage on 20 meters, a lot of contests, a lot of competitive DXing. 17 meters, that's my place. So I'll build it for 17. And I remembered that I have a receiver that is a um, one of the versions of the Bare Bones Superhead by Doug DeMaw. This one had been actually built by Dale Parfit, W4OP. And Dale had sold it to me and then I studied it and realized that he had placed the IF at 5 megahertz in, in that receiver. And then later on, when I moved this receiver to 17 meters, I went to Jan Crystals and bought a couple of rocks at around 23.1 megahertz. So 23.1 megahertz and the, uh, the 5 megahertz IF gets you right there. Good old 17 meters at 18 megahertz, 18.1. Bingo. There you go. So I realized that I could, if I, if I went ahead and built another crystal filter for the bit X at 5 megahertz, I could just take the crystals out of, or at least take one of them out of, the bare bones superhead receiver and use that and to get the, uh, the bit X transceiver going on 17 meters. So I did it. And I gave up on the, um, the uh, VFO and I went VXO. Now this was familiar territory for me and I, uh, I, I went the VXO went together very quickly, and it was very pleasingly stable. Doug DeMoa was right. <laughs> I mean, okay, you get limited frequency range, but with these two crystals, just the two crystals, I'll be able to tune from about, uh, 
18128 all the way up to the top of the band at 18168. So that's fine with me. That's good enough. And and I got to tell you, here's something else. Here's kind of a philosophical thing. You, you guys know I've been playing around with Arduino. And, um, and I've had some fun with it. Some fun. I say that with some reservation, obviously. Because, and, and when I was talking about this project on the blog, there were a number of fellows who wrote in and said, hey, why don't you just plug a, a DDS chip in there with an Arduino, get yourself a little LCD display, and you can move all over the band. You can move all over the HF spectrum, for that matter. And they're right. Uh, but I must say that for me, and this is a personal thing, I got a lot more satisfaction out of building that VXO than I did from building the DDS Arduino uh, signal generator or VFO. You could use it as a VFO. Uh, it just seemed to me that I was much closer to the uh, to the physics of it, and uh, and I I just liked it a lot more. I enjoyed what I was doing. I knew what every part was going to do. It was as if I was closer to actually making the RF myself, as opposed to having the the software and the you know the infinite number of uh, almost infinite number of transistors inside the DDS chip. I don't know. I mean, everybody's interested in different aspects of, of homebrewing and the hobby, but for me, um, I'm kind of more into the. Uh, I guess I'm a hardware-defined analog guy. That's that's it. <laughs> and, uh, I noticed as I was reading through these things, comments on on this kind of, you know, do do you go DDS or do you go VFO? And I definitely found some quotes from uh, from Doug Dumas saying that uh, you know he he prefers the um, the the older methods. And I also um, Todd at QRP Pops had similar comments there. And so I and I think also when I was reading through some of Farhan's stuff. Farhan also, I think, made comments about the the kind of the aesthetic preferability of uh, of going with a, a VFO as opposed to some really fancy DDS thing. You know, it would be it was just it, it, the whole DDS comp concept, or even the the SI five seventy, the whole digital frequency synthesis uh, concept is very much out of sync with the the ethos, the philosophy behind. The BitX, which is it's all about simplicity. It's all about easy to obtain components, and uh, and can kind of just discrete component uh, analog construction. So, at least with this version, there's no DDS, there's no LCDs, there's no code. The only code in there is the resistor color code, my friends. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so. Um, what else was I going to say about this? The um, let's see. Oh yeah, here talking about uh, being a, a purist here now. There's one little part. Oh, no, no, this is what Farhan was talking about. This is what Farhan was talking about. He wasn't talking about the DDS in this thing. He, one of his articles, he said something that really is. I think his main article about the BitX20. Um, he was talking about the one of the things I think it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. If you look at that BitX schematic, take a look at it. You'll find one component that seems out of place, and it's all the way at the very end. Brace yourself, gentlemen. In the BitX20 design, there is an LM386 audio amplifier 
chip. I say again, a chip in there. In there amidst all these discrete transistors and, and diodes and resistors and capacitors happily doing their thing individually, there's this chip, this little miniature black box. The black box that we're all trying to avoid. The little black box that's just a little piece of an appliance in there. And I, I, I read Farhan's article and he said that, I, I think he said in the article that he originally wanted to go with a uh, discrete component audio amplifier, but for, for one reason the LM386 was available and bang, it went in there. So I have, um, you know, I guess I'm trying to make up for my um, my transgression with the um, uh, with the toroids, with the with the ferrite and the iron powder and all that. My my failure to use nylon washers as toroid cores. So what I'm going to do is I'm building this thing without the LM386. Uh, so far, so good. I've got it going. Let me see if somebody's on here right now. Hold on. Not hearing anything. Hold on, let me tune around a bit. Well, I'll let it run. Maybe you guys can hear it. Anyway, I'm working on it. It's a work in progress. Um, I've got the receiver working out pretty well. I've learned a lot with this thing. I mean, it's, it's been a real good experience for me. Um, let me see. I'll just sort of talk about some of the different stages. Let me grab my notes here. I got a whole notebook developed on the BitX20 here. I find I like to have just one sheet of paper on the uh, on the workbench, not the book, just one sheet of paper. And whatever I'm working on, I take notes on it, and then in the end, I clip it all together, and I have this with a big paper clip. It becomes my BitX notebook. All right, here. So I'm looking at the schematic, and um, for those of you who want to follow along, just go to Farhan's site, but I'll tell you about it. And the different elements where I've learned things, the uh, the crystal filter, Farhan wrote and advised me to learn a little bit about how to characterize crystals so that you can do better um, and more, well, you can actually design crystal filters knowing what the physical characteristics of your crystal are. And, okay, so I did that. I built up a little oscillator and uh, it made the measurements and, and now I'm able to take that and plug the, the data into various different design programs. One comes with EMRFD and there's, there are others out there. I think almost all digital electronics AADE has, uh, has a free version also and this helps you design the filter. I, uh, I had trouble with my filter at first. I just I bought a bag of, um, of crystals. I think I bought them from Mauser. I bought 20 crystals at 10 megahertz. They were really cheap. The whole thing, I think, cost me about eight bucks. And um, I, I started fooling around with different capacitor values and because when you by changing the, the the capacitors to ground between the crystals, you can change the bandwidth of the uh, of the of the filter. 
and I, I messed around with it, I messed around with it, and I was having a lot of trouble. And then I saw a note, I think, from Farhan saying that you could just go cone. There's a particular com configuration of the filter in which all the capacitors are the same. Um, there are basically three capacitors to ground and two capacitors off the ends. And by changing the value of that, that one common you know, capacitor value, you change the, the bandwidth of the filter. And I chose uh, 40 picofarads, and it the, the all the programs that I was looking at predicted a fairly wide filter, and um, and that's what I got. It's about three kcs wide, which is the way I like it. I don't like kind of tight filters. My one complaint about the Drake 2B is that it's a little bit too too tight um, in terms of um, of um, bandwidth. But anyway, uh, I I got that. My one problem remaining with the filter is that I think there, the the, uh, the software predicts that I have quite a bit of ripple in the passband, and my observations of the filter also uh, confirm that there's quite a bit of ripple in there. And here is where DDS and Arduino come to the rescue and prove their worth. So I'm going to take back all the bad things I said about Arduino and DDS and all that digital stuff. Because, guys, there's no way I could have made any kind of meaningful measurements or observations about this filter with my old, you know, LC, you know, SG6 Heathkit signal generator. No way. The, but, but what I could do ex exactly that with the, the AD9850 DDS with Arduino slapped on the bottom and an LCD display. Because that baby will put out really precise RF at you know 10 Hertz increments so what I did is I took the um, I just took that uh, um, filter that I built and I had you know I put the proper terminations on either end and then I, I put RF from the um, from the DDS from the from the DDS from the uh, AD 9850 I think it is and then I just started, I put the, the oscilloscope at the other end. I have a little backup oscilloscope here that I'm now using because I killed the Tech 465. But anyway, I, I watch what's coming out the other end. And I just move it in like 10 hertz increments. And I get a picture of what the passband of my filter looks like. I can see the peaks. I can see the valley. I can see the ripple. Really, really good. So I, I, that was good advice from Farhan. And thanks to Wes for <clears throat> for all that great software that comes with the MRFD. I've got to learn how to use it a little bit more. I, I, I realize I'm not quite up to speed on this. Um, you know, I, I, in Farhan's article about the BIDX, he describes the building process. And you get to the point where you've, you've basically done all of the receiver. You haven't built the power amplifier yet. But Farhan advises at that point that you take a break. He says, take a break and sit back and spend the evening listening to the receiver that you just built. Well, I, I followed that advice, but a lot further. I've spent about a week, maybe 10 days, listening to the receiver I built. <laughs> it sounds so good, and it's so nice, and it just sits here on the bench. It's beautiful. I've got pictures of it on the blog. I'm like, a, I'm like I don't know, it's crazy. I'm taking so many pictures of this thing. It shows you how much I like it. But uh, I sit here and I listen. i got it on here now, see? Uh-oh, QRPS. Okay, we'll stick to 
All right, they got a QRP here. There's a QRP here. All right, I'm telling you. Another sign that the radio gods like this rig. All right, so that's the, that's the, the got the crystal filter squared away. But when I first started running this thing, it, it really, it was kind of deaf. You could, you know, you could just, you get, you used to it. I mean, I feel sorry for, for new builders and new hams because they might not even really know kind of deep in their bones what a, what a, what a properly functioning receiver sounds like. You know, and I could just tell that this thing was was having trouble inhaling. You know, your a good old rule of thumb when you're building receivers to determine whether you've made the thing sensitive enough is just to hook up the antenna, listen to it, listen to the statics coming out of the speaker without the antenna hooked up. You hook up the antenna, and if you notice that the noise, the static increases, and you're hearing the noise floor, well, that's a good indication that you're, you've made a sufficiently sensitive receiver. You can hear the noise. Now, obviously, if you've got, you know, a plasma TV running upstairs and that's what you're hearing, that's not too good. But if you're in a relatively quiet location and what you're hearing is kind of the, the background band noise, well, that's, if you can hear that, you're only going to hear signals that are above the noise. So there you go. You're, you're pretty good there. And I was I was hearing the noise, but just barely, just barely. It was really kind of weak. And um, I started poking around this thing. I couldn't figure out what it was, what was wrong with it. And I um, was in correspondence with 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 Farhan, and I mentioned this. And he said to me, um, he said, check the mixers. He said, whenever there's problems in this area, that's where where to look. And I I you know I I said, man. These particular mixers, the you know the the four diodes and the diode ring, and then the, the classic um, two diodes and a trifiller transformer. I mean, I've built many of these things, and I know how to be careful not to put the windings in the wrong way, how to respect the phase and all that. And they were working, and I figured, well, look, these kind of mixers, either they're going to work or they're not going to work. If you if you wire them wrong, they're not going to work. If you got the diodes in wrong, they're not going to work. And so these were working. So I momentarily, momentarily, kind of in my mind said, nah, that can't be it. But then I said, wait a second. This advice is coming from the chief designer, from Farhan himself, from the creator of the Bidex. So I said, I better pay heed to this advice. And so I went in there and I started looking at it. And I said, you know what? Those diodes in I have in there, they look kind of big. They were junk box diodes. Most everything I use is out of the junk box. Some of it's properly marked. Some of it's not. Some of it looks like diodes. Some of it, you know, who knows? I mean, I tested these things. I knew they were diodes. But I put them in there, and I never even really checked the specs. I figured diodes are diodes. Put them in there. Boom. They were there. So I said, let me pull them out. And let me take a look at what the forward resistance is on these diodes. And compare it. The 1N914s, standard little diodes that you get in these packages of 50 from Radio Shack that we use in all these projects. And sure enough, the forward resistance on these diodes that I had in there was like significantly higher. I mean, by hundreds of ohms of the uh, from the IN114s, IN914s that we always use. 
So bang, all those, all six diodes, pull them out, popped in IN, one N914s, one, one and right away that receiver just kind of brightened up. And you could tell that it was, it was, it was doing a good job. It was, um, I could hear the noise. Stations sounded right. They didn't sound muffled. They didn't sound like they were struggling to get through. They sounded, they sounded good. So thanks to Farhan. And, and remember, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, if you get advice from Farhan, you listen. Um, then I started looking, you know, the, I'm, I'm, I'm using his design here, but the designs for 17 meters, for 20 meters and I'm building for, for 20. So obviously some things have to change. And one of the big things that have to change is the bandpass filter. There's a big bandpass filter at the front end of the receiver. And it also serves as the post mixing filter on the transmit side. And it's obviously tuned to 18.1 megahertz. Um, and, um, I, I went on to the, the BidX site. There's an amazing, there's a whole culture, there's a whole world of BidX builders on the internet. They're at uh, BidX20 at yahoogroups.com. And there's about 2,000 members of the group, and you get all kinds of great advice. They've got great files and everything else. There's a fellow out in Malta, a really avid QRP or and home brewer named Stanley, and he had a good design in there for a simple bandpass filter for uh, for 17 meters. And uh, I just lifted his design and built it. And uh, but then I started having doubts. I was I was having doubts about the loss in this thing and uh, whether it was lossy or whether I was. For, this is when I was struggling with the uh, the deafness, you know. So at one point, my suspicion was focused on Stanley, poor Stanley's uh, bandpass filter. It turned out to be perfectly fine. And so what I had to do, I did a couple things. One, I um, I discovered another really good piece of software called Elsie, E-L-S-I-E, L-C, get it? L-C, inductance and capacitance. It's a, there's a freeware version you could get, and it helps you just design a, uh, a bit of, of software, uh, design the filter on the, uh, on the computer, and then predict the pass band, predict loss, and everything else. And I looked at it, and you know there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of loss. I mean, there's always going to be a bit of loss going through these things, about uh, you know three to six dB, something like that. That's to be expected. That's what you have amplifiers for. And okay, so I figured the uh, the bandpass filter is okay. I learned how to use LC in the process, um, and then the whole thing just started coming together. I've got it all on one board. You can see it on the uh, the blog page. Now, Farhan, when he built his, he built the driver and the power amplifier on a separate board, uh, separated them off in the corner. But I was trying to get my whole uh, rig on one copper-clad board. I'm building it Manhattan-style. So it's a Manhattan-style BIDX, discrete, a discrete Manhattan BIDX. You know, a lot of discretion is required in Manhattan. Fellas, <laughs> or so I understand. <laughs> anyway, discrete Manhattan BIDX with no LM386s. I really like this thing. It's one of my favorite rigs so far. It's not quite done. Just, you know, I was one of the reasons I've been slow in finishing it up. Well, a number of reasons. But one, is that I've been having so much with fun with the receiver, I didn't want to spoil it by starting to struggle with amplifiers. And I knew, based on my long and painful history with uh, with uh, amplifiers, that 
this was going to be painful. But anyway, this weekend I built the, um, the, the, the power amplifier. It uses an IRF 510. It's got a little driver before it and a pre-driver. Three stages of amplification after the bandpass filter. And I got that all built. And uh, it's sort of, kind of, working. <laughs> Let me go back a second. You know, on the receiver, just some words of advice from somebody who struggled with a lot of receiver projects. Every single receiver I've built, certainly every single superhead that I've built, direct conversions are a bit easier, but every superhead that I've built, when you get it done, I go through this process. I call it kind of coaxing signals out of the receiver. And all kinds of little things have to be adjusted. All kinds of alignments have to be done. And, uh, and every step as you're listening, you start hearing the, the hiss from the audio amplifiers. Then you, you know, you rub that, uh, you know, screwdriver across the antenna terminal and you hear the noise from the screwdriver making contact there. So you know the thing is working. You hook up the amplifier. You start tweaking that bandpass filter. Suddenly you hear the first signal coming through. It's a, it's a wonderful process, but it requires patience, and it really helps if you know from the get-go that this is going to be part of the game, that you're not going to build a superhead receiver, plug in 12 volts, and then have, you know, you know, beautiful SSB signals pouring out of the speaker. No, it doesn't work that way. You build it, then you peak and tweak and peak and tweak and peak and tweak, and you coax that signal out of the ether. And in the end, you're rewarded with a nice sounding receiver if everything goes well. But um, anyway, now I'm I'm I've passed I'm past those happy days of joyful listening to um, the the this, the um, the new receiver. You know that's that's where the uh, the term solder smoke came from. It was a quote that I saw many years ago on one of the QRP or it might have been the boat anchors mailing list, and it said something like I was listening to the magic. The magical sound that comes in a cloud of smoke, a cloud of solder smoke, and it's the sound that comes from a receiver that you built yourself. There you go. That's a, so we're getting back to the, the basic roots of <laughs> of solder smokeism. Uh, let's see. Oh, um, another way the um, the Arduino and the and the DDS chip helped me a lot was that. On this rig, it was really quite easy to um, place the BFO in proper relationship to the um, to the passband of the filter, because with that DDS um, Arduino combination, I knew exactly what the what the what the frequency range of that five megahertz IF was, and I also knew exactly just theoretically. I just sit back, sit back, sat back and looked at it. And I drew myself a little diagram of the passband. And I said, okay, where would I like the uh, the center frequency to be? Where would I like that that BFO zero beat to be? And it just needed to be up a little bit above the um, at the top end of the um, the filter. Yeah. So my filter was going from a 4.99817 megahertz all the way up to um, let's see, what was the top? Top band up to 5.000960 megahertz, and so I figured I would just move the um, the BFO 
about 300 hertz above the upper limit of the passband, which put the BFO at 5.00126 megahertz. And with my um, Kempton Raleigh Tony Fishpool painfully repaired frequency counter, I moved the little BFO frequency to exactly where I wanted it. No fuss, no muss. There, wa there we were. It was working. So that was uh, another notable contribution from the land of digital electronics. Thank you very much, Arduino guys and digital fellows. And uh, anyway, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll mention something somebody sent me here in that area when we get to the to the mailbag. Okay, so there we have it. The receiver's done, pretty much. Although I have to finish up the um, audio amplifier, I um, I haven't been having a lot of success in 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 replacing the LM386. I just took the LM386 out and I put in a um, a Darlington pair amplifier out of I think I got it out of um, the 1980 Radio Amateurs Handbook. There might be a version of it in solid state design. Yeah, I think it's from. You can also find it in solid state design. I think. But it's just a Darlington pair, and um, it promises 100 dB of audio gain. I don't think it's um, mine is getting anywhere near 100 dB, because as Steve Smith points out, combined with the audio preamp, that would be like way, way too much audio amplification for this rig. But Farhan wrote, and Farhan told me that in the design they had deliberately put a lot of the gain in the audio and kept the uh, RF and IF amplification to the minimum. They put, they wanted, it, they deliberately put more of the gain in the audio section. So I've got some work to do. I've got some designs. So there's, there is on the um, on the Bidex page um, kind of a nice design for a, a discrete audio amplifier um, using um, a complementary pair couple of diodes, a very familiar um, circuit, but I might have to give that a try because I want to definitely get rid of the uh, the uh, LM386. Just here, I gotta go check on dinner. Okay, so the house is not burning down, lasagna's still cooking. It's a scary thing guys, I've been left here to my own devices and with the only instructions being to cook the lasagna. Put the lasagna. And actually, cook it. Put it in the oven. That's what I'm doing. Um, all right. So I got to figure out what to do about the audio amplifier. All right. Now the tale of woe on the transmit side is um, the same sad story that you hear every time I build a transmitter. The amplifiers are oscillating a bit. A bit. It's not too bad. And I don't know how much power out I'm getting. Quite. I don't think it's quite right. But um, I can see in there a little bit of, um, I can see that there's a, an oscillation going on at about 100 kilohertz. It's a very low, low frequency oscillation. It's not there when I have the, uh, the rig hooked up to a dummy load. It's only there when I have it hooked up to the antenna. And I don't have the, the rig in a metal box. I'm hoping that when I seal it all up properly, and get it some shielding and get the whole get the get the case properly grounded that the oscillation problem might go away but that's what i always say <laughs> so so we'll see again this is this is i guess the transmit 
counterpart of the receive story I told you. With receivers, you have to kind of, you know, pull the signal out of the ether. With transmitters, you have to squeeze the gremlins out of your signal. You have to squeeze the life out of them. <laughs> you have to crush those oscillations that you don't want. And uh, I don't know. I thought I think the receiver thing it's it's a lot it's a lot nicer. Anyway, just looking through my notes here, there's a whole like I said a whole world of BitX20 out there. There's a a BitX17 that's that's available as a kit. Most I think most people who build these rigs use uh, PC boards that have been produced. There's several different versions. There's modifications. There's improvements. Um, really good stuff and it's once you get into the bit x20 world there's a, a lot of room for experimentation and um now there's stanley's filter nh a nine hotel one lima oscar 17 meter bandpass filter thank you stanley and um now there's the hendrix bit x20a an article on how to use it on 17 meters and the bit x17a um Oh yeah, let me ask you one other thing here, guys. I want to see some world's words of wisdom about this. Um, the the PA that I'm using, it's just a standard IRF 510 driven by a 2N2219. Now the standard BIDX design has two bifiller uh, transformers. You know the, the the typical you know 50 ohm to 200 ohm transformers that we we see in in many of our rigs. And uh, now uh, Chris PA3CRX did a, something a bit different on his amplifier stages for the BIDX17. Instead of using bifiller transformers, he used trifiller for a um, 9 to 1 impedance uh, match. And he said here, um, what does he, how does he put it here? Uh, da, 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 da. A major difference with the original schematic is that I do not use a bifiller transformer between the 22N2219 and the IRF510, but a trifiller transformer. This gives much lower impedance to the gate of the IRF510, better match, resulting in much more output. Also, at the output of the IRF510, I use a trifiller transformer. I've done that. What do you guys think? Should I do that, or should I go back to... Um, the original bifiller design. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, I turn to you for for advice. Let me see. I have a couple other things here on the list before we get to the the mailbag. Then I got to get take care of the lasagna. Hey, listen, Tyson the cat. Tyson the cat used up one of his nine lives this week. Poor fellow, sick, real sick. I thought he was. I thought he was done for. But the, the vet gave him some antibiotics, and he has pulled through. So it was good news for us. Oh, as part of back-to-school week, um, I went with um, Maria to, to buy his school supplies. And there in Staples, they're selling duct tape with Justin Bieber's picture on it. Justin Bieber duct tape. I think this is a sign that the, uh, the end time is near. <laughs> When they start making duct tape with Justin Bieber, holy cow! That that just does not belong in a ham shack. Um, I found at the hardware store something I thought was pretty cool: bifocal safety glasses. Have you guys seen these things? Bifocal safety glasses. They go for about eleven bucks, 
they're just regular old safety glasses, but the bottom part is like reading glasses. And you just, you, you, you kind of prescribe yourself. They have several different sets there. You figure out what number you like and you get it. It's pretty good. And so you protect your eyes and you don't have to constantly be fumbling for your reading glasses because the bottom half is, uh, is your reading glasses. So I found it at the local hardware store. Uh, you guys might want to look into that. Uh, I now, however, because I use reading glasses all the time, listen to this. See if you can guess what this is. Yep, hear that? Yep. That's the magnetic um, reading glasses I have. They have a little magnet that sits right up on top of your nose. And you just pull the two lenses apart. People think you broke your glasses. Nope. Makes it a lot easier to put on. I never lose them. Get yourself some magnetic reading glasses. They sell them at CVS for 20 bucks. It'll change your life. Hey, uh, Ward Silver wrote a book, um, Ham Radio for Dummies. And let me see, where is it? I got it right here. The, uh, the people at the publishing company wrote to me, a Wiley brand Ham Radio for Dummies um, by H. Ward Silver. And learn to acquire your license and call signs, send email using your radio, assist with emergency communications, and build a personal wireless system for home, mobile, and portable operating. Ward's new book is out, and they were very kind to send me this copy. Uh, you know, I think it's a good thing if, you, if, you're, if you're trying to interest a youngster in ham radio. It looks like it's got a, a lot of the kind of stuff that they would be interested in. And, uh, I, you know, it look, looks, looks fine. It looks like a really nice, nice book. If anybody... Um, is looking to, to get somebody going on ham radio. I think it's, it's just the thing. So thanks to, to Ward and to his, his publisher for sending me the book. It looks like a very nice product. Speaking of interesting uh, young people in ham radio, you know, I, uh, I'm a big fan of the Hackaday website. It's not exactly ham radio, but there's been some ham radio in there. And uh, the guys at Hack Hackaday has got a new kind of team working there now, and they um, – they got in touch with me and they asked me to write a, a little article, 500 words, about why um, kind of computer techie people, I mean hackers in the good sense of the word, not you know black hat hackers, but hackers like technically oriented guys in the computer world should be interested in ham radio. And I, uh, so I wrote them up a little article. It's there on the Hackaday site and uh, got quite a bit of uh, interest, about 150 or so comments were attached to them some of them good some of them thoughtful and some of them not so much but heck that's just the way it is and um anyway i had some fun with that and it, uh, i think I, I think it did get some people interested in in ham radio uh and one other thing i'd like to note you know our british cousins are, are do things differently sometimes we know this this is you know just part of the the charm of the united kingdom for Americans, <laughs> I had you know four years of very pleasant experience with this kind of charm. You know, my wife rarely let me ride the drive the car because I would insist on going the American way through the roundabout, through the traffic circle. It doesn't work very well that way, fellas. So that's why I became the the navigator. But uh, I we recently discovered something here. We've been getting back into bicycling. I, I ride my bike to work, all kinds of bike riding. And uh, I, have, I have the same bike that I've had since 1989. I've driven it now in six countries. I'm quite fond of it. It's very antiquated. It's way too heavy. I'm the slowest bike on the trail. Um, I'm, I'm almost a victim of bike rage sometimes because I'm slowing things up on the Washington and Old Dominion Trail. Anyway, uh, my wife has a bike that she bought in England, and I never really paid a whole, much, whole lot of attention to it, but I was getting it going the other day. 
and I was riding it and I realized, and this might come as a shock to many of you folks, but you might, this might help you out someday. Do you know that on British bicycles, they have the brakes reversed on the handlebar? On all American bicycles, the, the rear brake is on your right, on your right hand. So you learn very early on that when you want to slow that bike down, you better hit that rear brake first. Don't go grabbing the, the, the front brake because you'll go, you know, you'll flip right over. Um, but so you always grab the, the rear brake and you end up using the rear brake most of the time. Now, on British bicycles, I was shocked to learn, shocked that they have, if you grab that, that brake on the right, in your right hand on the handlebar, you are controlling not the rear, but the front brake. Holy cow, man, that's, <laughs> that's a, that's, I, the guy at the bike store told me about this. He says, yeah, it's dangerous as hell for us. <laughs> so I had him reverse it. We have uh, Americanized that British bicycle. And I, I informed my wife that she now had to use the American system. So there we go. Anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. All right. Now it's time for Solder Smoke Mailbag. Ooh, that's awesome. People have been sending me stuff, and I have to thank them. I, um, I talked about the, the, the um, untimely... And I have to go check on some. Hold on. All right. So the Tech 465, I left it on. It was killed by the VFO because all of a sudden the the display went out. Boop. No more display. You know, an oscilloscope is of very little use if there's no display. <laughs> there's not that little line running back and forth. It's a it's you know a very large paperweight. So. I figured, okay, I can, there's a Tech 465, I should be able to fix this. I have the manual, I started poking around in the manual, I opened the thing up. Man, that is one complicated beast. If you guys have never been inside a Tech 465 oscilloscope, well, let me tell you, it's quite, quite a thing. It's quite a visit. It is, you know, it's, it's an amazing piece of gear when you go inside there it's it's I, I don't know how to describe it I've, I've got pictures out of it up on the blog but you know this is like late 60s early 70s technology and a lot of this stuff I mean they, they've got the transistors in there are in sockets transistors in sockets guys and that that, that was scary enough but then I looked and I said okay there's the sockets there's the transistors but then there's other transistors that look like they're soldered in. And I said, no, wait a second. What's the logic behind that? Why would they put some of them in sockets and solder others in? But then I looked, and even the ones that look like they're soldered in are not soldered in. In other words, if you grab that transistor and tug on it a little bit, it comes right out. It's, it's really, that, I mean, I found that kind of scary. And there's a lot of them, too. There are these huge circuit boards. The switching on it, the switches, very often like for the on-off switch and other switches, you look and they have mounted like way towards the back of the oscilloscope an ordinary switch like, you know, like you'd find in a hardware store. And they've got this nylon rod running all the way up to the front panel so that when you pull on it or push it, you're physically moving 
this switch that's way at the back. The same thing for some of the controls, some of the potentiometers in there. You've got these long nylon poles there running back to uh, the uh, to the front panel, all the way back to the pot. Wow, I tell you, I uh, I found it intimidating, and uh, I but I was able to do um, troubleshoot it, and I found out what part went bad. It's called a high voltage multiplier. It's a collection of uh, diodes that generates the high voltage for um, the um, for the cathode ray tube, and it's a part that frequently fails in Tech 465s. I learned this from a really excellent uh, group, the uh, Tech Group. I think it's um, Yahoo Group, yeah, you know, TechScopes or something like that. And uh, these guys told me that it's a it's a it's a hard part to get because they fail a lot in Tech 465s. But you know, never fails the the Brotherhood of Solder Smoke fans and technical friends came to my rescue. Hold on. Solder Smoke listener out there saw my uh, pleas for help. He is um, Carl in London. His call sign 2 Echo 0 Tech. What a great call sign, Carl. 2E0 Tech. He, he had a junker Tech 465 laying around and he extracted the high voltage multiplier. Sent it to me from the UK. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Now, I thought, okay, good. I know what part's bad. I have the replacement part. I'll just open that thing up, replace the high voltage multiplier, and I'm done. Gentlemen, ladies, it's not that easy. Holy cow. Just to get, I, I'm not even there yet. I had to remove circuit boards. I had to take out these long nylon um, spacers and control controllers. And uh, the thing is, you, you just to get access to the high voltage multiplier area, you're taking out so many screws and spacers and wires. You're having to desolder so many pieces of solder braid having to remove capacitors from the front ends of the attenuators you know and I must say the, the tech manuals are pretty good but they're really not not great because there's not a lot of drawings not a lot of diagrams not a lot of pictures it's not like a heat kit catalog and no offense to the tech fans out there but I found it's true for example they gave you a step-by-step -step, um, description of how to remove this one huge circuit board the vertical preamp board and I, I followed every one of their steps, and I found that there were still three or four wires that had to be removed or, or cut just to get that board out of there. So, uh, and, and all kinds of mechanical stuff, too. So I almost threw in the towel on the Tech 465 yesterday, and I just said, man, this is really frustrating. I am not going to be able to do this. I'm going to mess this up. I started thinking about trying to find a tech repairman in the Washington area who could do this thing for me. But then I took a deep breath and decided that I'll make this a long-term project. So I have a second workbench here in the shack that I've cleared off and that's going to be the, the home of the Tech 465 until I get it working again. Might take a while, but uh, I'm going to persevere and I'm going to get this thing back in operation because it was it was given to me by uh, 
very uh, close ham radio friend, and uh, I think I owe it. He's requested to remain anonymous, but I owe it to him to get this baby working, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> All right, let's see. Um, anyway, so thanks there, uh, Carl, for, uh, for that. Now, I've got another gift in the mail. This is one of the, I mean, one of the wonderful things about this show. People send you great stuff. And this is about the Arduino. And let's see. Um, yeah, Paul Darlington and I have been corresponding. Paul has a great website. Um, and his, his website has been dealing with uh, Arduino stuff. If you're looking for him, uh, just look up Paul, Paul Darlington. Uh, on the internet, and you'll, you'll get to his blog. Oh, there's the phone. Now there's somebody's calling. They'll answer. They're upstairs now. Hold on. See, this is what happens when you try to record a solder smoke podcast when the family is awake. <laughs> anyway, uh, Paul and Kanga Kits have sent me a really cool um, shield, an Arduino shield for the DDS-60. DDS, um, the chip right here, they even sent me the chip for, for the same DDS chip, the DDS shield, yeah, for the, um, for the Arduino from Kanga products. Looks like just the thing, just the thing to save me from a lot of the, the heartache that I went through with the, um, with the Arduino and the DDS because I was doing it with all kinds of soldering and wires and everything else and it turned out to be a real kind of rat's nest, but they've done all the work for you because they've got this board where you just pop the uh, Arduino in on one side and the, the DDS chip rides up on top. It's the shield concept so important in the world of Arduinos. A uh, shield is really just like an extension board. So you have this board, in this case the, the DDS chip that rides on the shield. The shield, bang, you just put it onto the connector on top of the uh, Arduino, load in the software and away you go and you just convert it. You just come up with a a device that is a signal generator or a VFO or whatever you want. So thanks very much, Paul. And um, thanks to, Je to Dennis at, at Kanga Products UK for sending that. It looks like a really fine product. If you guys are interested in getting into the, to the DDS game, direct digital synthesis with Arduino, uh, look no further than Kanga Products. It looks like a really nice piece of kit. So, so thanks for sending that to me, guys. Let's see what else we have in the mailbox oh yeah and a couple other things important things i need to mention that arrived in the mail you know i uh since our last podcast i completed another earth orbit and um in the mail came a, a very appropriate gift from our friend roger willems papa alpha one zulu zulu roger lives on lives in california and he has a u.s call but i always think of him as papa alpha one zulu zulu and um a frequent correspondent has sent, has sent many things over the years. And this, this year, he sends a really appropriate gift. And I have it sitting here. I haven't used it yet. It's just so beautiful. I have it sitting in front of me in, um, on the uh, computer desk. And it's a really nice four-section ganged uh, variable capacitor with reduction drive, with gears, the whole thing. And I think uh, Roger probably heard me talking so much about... Uh, um, Arduinos and DDS. He probably sensed my uh, underlying distress with that uh, technology. So he sent me this uh, sort of quintessentially 
analog <laughs> piece of piece of gear. Thanks for that, Roger. It also thanks. Here's something else. I, I mentioned this uh, on the completion of the last orbit. Um, when Elisa, when my wife starts looking for uh, a birthday present for me, she now has a practice that she always consults with Roger. She sends him an email, and he comes back always with really good su su suggestions. And he really, he, he hit the nail on the head this year, too. You'll recall a while back on the blog, we were talking about a, uh, an old wall chart, uh, or the wall chart of electromagnetic radiation. So if you're, you're interested in this, take a look. Just scroll, scroll through the blog. You'll see a picture of it. And, um, and Roger, Roger knew that I, was, uh, in, that I really liked this chart. And he mentioned it to Elisa and also they told her where she could get a large-scale version of it. So she went out and got one and then uh, she and uh, and Maria uh, mounted it up on a nice uh, piece of board and everything else. I have it sitting there right in front of me in the shack. Another uh, another contribution from uh, from Roger out there on the West Coast. Thanks. Thanks very much, Roger. Oh, oh man, something else very important. Another package came. How could I have almost forgotten this? Um, when I, I started troubleshooting the Tech 465, my first thought was uh, to turn to Alan Wolke, W2AEW, one of the real tech gurus. Tech, Alan's a you know, field engineer for, uh, for Tektronics, and uh, you know, he, he's a real expert on, on all this stuff. He, you know, I, obviously, he focuses most of his professional time on the more modern equipment but he knows about all this stuff and he's really deep into the whole tech culture tech with a k t-e-k tektronics um and when i told him about the problems that i was having with troubleshooting he realized that i needed a high voltage probe to uh to check out the um the power supply on the tech 465 and he very kindly put together a tektronics uh, care package for me and sent me a couple of very cool-looking high-voltage probes. If you didn't know what they were, you'd think they were for some sinister, painful application. Uh, you didn't know they were test gear. Um, but I uh, put them to use, and that was with it was with Alan's gear that I was able to uh, to troubleshoot the Tech 465 and find out what it is exactly that's ailing it. So. Uh, Thanks very much for that, Alan, and I'll get you that stuff back. As you hold, let me hold on to it for a little while. I think I might need to do some additional text testing, but if you need it back, let me know. We'll get it right back to you, Alan. Also, thanks very much. You sent me this really cool Tektronix notebook. Wow, makes me even more of a feel like I'm really more part of the tradition. Thanks for that. Thanks for all your help, Alan, and all your advice. Great videos too. Alan continues to put out wonderful videos. Check them out on YouTube. Armand, uh, he, he really liked a uh, article I posted on the blog about a fellow named Robert Ford, who was a radio operator for Free Tibet back in the, the days when Tibet was uh, having some real difficult political troubles. Um, and he, he the article, it, it appeared in The Economist and discusses uh, ham radio and uh, Robert Ford's use of ham radio to stay in touch with folks back home and how that eventually led to some real deep problems with the uh, the authorities. Yeah, check out the article. The link to it is on my blog. And good to hear from you, Armand. Got a real nice note from uh, Robert N7REP. He's melting solder again. 
he liked the book. It says it gave him many aha moments. That's what exactly I was hoping to produce because it's all based on the aha moments that I uh, discovered and <laughs> that I went through myself. And uh, Robert, a very, very kind support for, uh, for Solder Smoke. Thanks for that, Robert. Really appreciate it. We'll put it to good use. Uh, Hank, a K5HDE, is a new listener and uh, getting ready to melt some solder. And he is uh, doing so in a hollow state kind of way. He's got uh, our friend Grayson Evans' book, Hollow State Design, and he's putting it to good use. And uh, I put him in touch with Grayson. So uh, that's one of the great things about the uh, the, uh, the the home brewing solder smoke fraternity. Uh, you're, uh, it's a small enough group that uh, beginners and uh, experts are in, in frequent contact, and there's a real good spirit of mutual support. This is something that I pointed out in the... Uh, Hackaday article. Uh, I think that's an important part of the uh, the International Brotherhood of Electronic Wizards. Here we go. Um, Klebe, a PP2KR, um, saw my discussion of using a DSB rig for a Whisper and JT65 and wanted me to send a schematic. And I pointed out that uh, my rigs are not really uh, carefully designed or documented for reproduction. They're it's a miracle that they're documented at all. And all my parts are kind of randomly selected. Well, not randomly selected, but almost randomly selected junk box parts. Um, so I advised Klebe to look to people who are a little bit more um, disciplined and rigorous about documenting their work. Uh, Peter Parker, one who comes to mind. Uh, Ruben Pierce um, is uh, getting ready to melt solder too. He's been inspired by the podcast and the book. And interested in recommendations for a homebrew double sideband and SSB rigs, I I sent him some words of advice, suggesting that he start out small and work his way up. And I think also Peter Parker's pages would be a a good uh, a good place to look for uh, early projects. Some of those uh, simple rigs look like uh, they'd be a lot of fun. Finally, kind of disturbing email here. One of our brothers has uh, gone over to the dark side, gentlemen. I'm talking about Steve Snortrosin Smith out there on the left coast. Writes to inform me that he has ordered not one but several Arduinos. Can you believe it? Microcontrollers have worked their way into the shack of Steve Smith. What next, Steve? Single sideband? Could it be? Double sideband? Phone? Are you going to forsake the telegraph key now that you've thrown dis thrown discrete components and analog technology right under the digital bus? I haven't heard from you, Steve. I hope you're you haven't just uh, kind of disappeared into the Arduino ether. <laughs> Let us know what's happening out there, Steve. And that's that's about it. Look, we're wow at an hour and ten minutes. I hope you guys enjoy this uh, walk through Arduino land. Not Arduino. What am I saying? through Bidex land, the opposite. Well, a little bit of both. Thanks to everybody. Special thanks to Farhan and the Bidex 20 community for the great fun that they've been providing. And I really do recommend you guys take a look at the, the Bidex for a, a winter build project. It's a lot of fun. It's a wonderful rig. 7-3 from Northern Virginia. Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. 
our blog, the Sutter Smoke Daily News, is at suttersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to suttersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Sutter Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Sutter Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!